Okay, so welcome to City Church, and we are uh, in a little uh, series. It's going to be two weeks long. It's something that has been a little bit of a passion project for me, and uh, we are calling it the Bible, and today we're going to be talking about what, uh, what's so great about it. And so one of the things that I hear people uh, constantly, uh, especially people who are wrestling with their faith or who are unbelievers, they constantly come back to an attack on the Bible, the authenticity of Scripture. Uh, And so what I want to do is I want to this week... Uh, kind of look at uh, an acad- take an academic approach to why we uh, believe that the scriptures are authentic, and then next week I will come with more of like an archaeological uh, approach, uh, like looking at ancient texts and uh, what they have to say. So uh, hopefully today will be informative for you uh, and ultimately equipping you in the conversations that you have with people who are questioning their own faith or who are unbelievers and they're coming at it from the perspective of how can I trust the scripture? And, and, and the first time that I ever heard this presented to me as an argument, I was actually in Bible college and uh, there was a, a, a girl who uh, w- attended school with my wife and I and she got into a relationship with a guy who was uh, kind of a, a professing atheist. And so it was really odd to all of us that she was in Bible college and she was dating an atheist. And uh, I took the opportunity to try to, uh, you know, I, I try to walk out a relationship with this guy, try to be his friend, try to engage in conversation with him. And his argument was, you know, my dad told me that uh, you can't believe it comes from God if it has a copyright in it. And so he would open up his Bible and inside of the scriptures, sure enough, you would see some type of copyright that was in there. And that was his reason for why it was completely fake. The problem is, is that those copyrights were around the translations and were a copyright to protect the work that usually teams of hundreds of academics have taken years of their lives pouring into translation and what they want to make sure is that not just anybody can come and actually tear that apart and then change it. They want to make sure that the translation is protected. And so uh, it was really difficult to try to have that conversation and help him understand that that copyright was not there to say that this was mine and I'm protecting it because I want this certain amount of money, but it was actually in place to make sure that outsiders were not able to come in and make changes to the work that they had done. It was to protect the integrity of it, not the financial gain or benefit from it. So, uh, so that for me was this, this conversation with a skeptic. Somebody who said, I just don't know that I can believe that the scriptures are authentic. And, and for me, I, I, I would come home, and I'm, I'm going to be honest, I would come home from those conversations with him, and I would think to myself, like, like th- this is not, these are not intelligent arguments, right? And, and this is problematic for me. I don't know if you're like this or not, but when I hear people give some arguments to things that I feel like are not intelligent, I struggle with how to stay in the conversation. Because I think to myself, like, are you not 
thinking for yourself. In fact, I was watching a uh, podcast this last week. Uh, actually, it was a, a conspiracy podcast, and uh, I, I enjoy watching uh, the different conspiracies that people can come up with. Sometimes I'll listen to a conspiracy. I don't know, maybe you like some conspiracies, and you're like, ooh, man, that might actually be something. And then there are times when I hear a conspiracy, and I'm sitting here thinking, like, why is nobody in this room throwing this bozo out, right? Right now, what they're saying is is com- completely removed from reality. And I was listening to this guy this week, and he was talking about why Jesus doesn't exist. And his argument was, and he, he looked to one of the guys on the microphone, and he said, you're Hispanic, right? And the guy was like, yeah, I have family from Mexico. And he said, right, so do you know any Jesuses down there? And he was like, yeah, there's a, a lot of Jesuses down there. And he's making the argument, right? There's like maybe thousands of Jesuses. And he's like, what does Jesus sound like? It sounds like hey Zeus. And then how is it spelled? The same way that Jesus spells his name. You see, Jesus is actually just people saying hey to Zeus. And I was like, I was texting Quinn, and I was like, I'm losing my mind right now. <laughs> I mean, like, like, does this guy not even understand that Jesus as an actual name, that's an English translation. Like, if we even go back to Scripture, and we were to go to the, to the Hebrew, and then to the Greek, and even into the Latin, which we had portions of the text in the very early days being translated, the word Jesus doesn't show up inside of those texts, right? This is our translation moving into the English, and yet people, and so the guy who's doing the interview is just sitting here, and he's going, you are blowing my mind right now, and I, I, was, I was just losing. I was laughing to the point of tears that people were buying into this, right? So, so there's the skeptic. There's always somebody who's skeptical, and they don't want to believe, and then you have the, the analytic, right? And this is the person who is the, the thinker. They need data. They need information. And, and, and the problem that we run into, and I'm, I tend to be analytical, and this gets me into trouble, uh, especially when I am uh, traveling. Uh, I will go and, and we'll be on vacation, and we'll go to church on a Sunday, and my wife will say, hey, listen, turn off that analytical side of you when you walk in. Just go in be in the presence of God and receive what you can receive. Because I'll walk in and just immediately start taking in data and start going, like, like just creating my own assumptions. And I'm sure if you're a guest here today, you, you might, if you're analytical, you're doing the same thing. You're like looking at all the data points and like, why are they doing this? And what does this look like? And, and, and then you're going to come into the message and you're going you're gonna to be looking to see like, is, is this guy got any theology? Is it sound? How's he backing up what he's saying? And, and so I tend to be like this. So I, this, I, I feel like I understand a little bit better. And this is the person who says, look, that was 2,000 years ago when these things were being written, um, or at least that's what the claims are. And how can we validate that? How can we verify that this is uh, uh, authentic or that it has been protected And then you have the academic. And I want to say that I intentionally have removed the academic from the analytic 
And, and, and let me tell you why, right? So there was a, a young man who was, in a, who was in university that is located here in Savannah. I won't name the university uh, because there's a number of universities. Uh, I just want to help paint a picture, and you might be able to figure this out. It's not a slam uh, on the school. Uh, it, it just is an academic perspective for you. And uh, this, this particular student had come to me and was a freshman and said, I, I had a really weird first class with this professor. And I was like, what does that mean? And he said, well, they, they told me they, they wanted to know who in the room uh, had some type of faith in a God, right? So that's pretty generic. And, you know, a lot of hands went up. And of course, he, the professor said, you know, maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're Muslim, maybe, maybe you're Hindu, whatever that breakdown is. My goal is that by the end of this section of class uh, that you will know that, that all of that's silly and that there is no God and you've been lied to your entire life to this point. I'm here to set you free, right? And so that's a really interesting thing for a professor to say is one of their goals when what we're paying for is to actually help us develop skills and knowledge to move into a career, right? But, but there are academics out there that have evidently some different ideas about what their role in uh, society is. Uh, this same student, a couple of years later, was in a, uh, a class that, uh, uh, where they were looking at, uh, I'm trying to think about how to word this in, in a really good generic way, uh, religious, the, uh, the history of religious art. There's a good way to kind of sum this up. And so they were showing a picture of uh, the, the painting of the Last Supper. Are you, are you familiar with the painting of the Last Supper? Da Vinci painted this one. Uh, and, and, and the teacher was telling them in the lecture that this was a, a picture that uh, Da Vinci painted uh, marking a, a wedding that Jesus was attending where he turned water into wine. And that uh, this was everybody sitting at the table, drinking the wine and having a really good time. And so the student, said, he, he told me, he said, I, I just raised my hand. And I was like, um, um, I'm sorry, uh, I think that you got that backwards. This was actually the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples before he went to the cross. This is where uh, we get, uh, you know, the, 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 the practice of communion uh, from. And the professor said, who's the teacher in the class? And uh, that's me. And what I want to make sure you understand is that the way I teach it is the way you'll be tested on. So you need to listen to what I'm telling you, right? Now, I'm not saying that all professors are like this, right? I mean, th this would not be the case. I've had professors in my academic career that have absolutely changed my life. They've invested in me. They've made a huge impact in who I am today. Uh, uh, Professor Dan Crabtree, who taught my Old Testament survey, made the scripture come to life to me in ways I can't even, like he, he would teach in a way to where he, I don't know how he timed this, but right when it was time for class to end, he would leave on a cliffhanger right? Where everybody was like, people who weren't even in the class showed up just to listen to his storytelling skills. And we would be like, come on, finish the story. And he was like, 
Ah, you'll have to come back on Thursday. We'll pick up right there. And so what did we, we all wanted to be in class, and he was teaching us and training us. It was a huge impact. So, so I am fully aware that not all people who are in academia uh, take on this idea, but there is an academic approach that seems to sometimes want to go, uh, that wants to, to, to go counter to our, even our very logic, like our, our reasoning skills. And so our questioning of Scripture is a conditioned response that with objective reasoning we can overcome. What do I mean by this? I mean that the world around us has conditioned us to want to ask the question, how can the Scriptures be authoritative? How can we trust them? Uh, And they use examples like, have you ever played a game of, what what do you call it, phone or whatever. You know the game where you sit in a circle and you tell somebody something and then they tell it to somebody and by the time it gets around to you, it's not the same thing. And then they use that child's game as an illustration for how the scripture just clearly can't be the same today that it was when it was written. And so even if we wanted to believe in a God and believe that he had inspired these authors to write this stuff out, There's no way that what we're reading today is the same as what was being written then. And so what my goal today is, is to, from a academic perspective, uh, uh, to help you see how that is actually not only possible, plausible, but it actually is verified. So the question we have to ask first is, do we judge the authenticity of Scripture by the same standards we judge all ancient literature? Because we, do, we have the debate around the, the integrity of Scripture, but what we don't seem to have is a debate around other works. In fact, we'll walk into the literature department at school, and they'll hand us a copy uh, of, uh, of an ancient text, text by Homer, and they'll tell us this was written by Homer, and we are reading exactly what it is that he was conveying, Right? And so we have ancient texts that are presented to us as being some form of what we would consider canon, right? It's verified, it's authentic. And so we have a standard by which we go and measure that, or or somebody does. Are they using that same standard that they authenticate those when it comes to authenticating? And we're going to specifically, for the sake of time, look at authentication of the New Testament. So uh, this chart right here, I, I compiled this from equip.org, and we'll do our deep dive uh, podcast this week, and we'll have links to that in the uh, uh, description below on that video. Hopefully you are able to read this. I see some of you squinting. Uh, I'm going to go with, you might need glasses. Not that the text is uh, out of contrast and small. Uh, so... <laughs> It's all my fault always. So, so I just want to take a look at a few of these for you, and hopefully this will make sense for you. Uh, we'll begin right here with uh, Homer. Anybody familiar with Homer, right? So uh, he wrote the Iliad, uh, and so it was written, uh, we are told, in 800 B.C., okay? So track with me. Uh, the earliest known copy of it that we have is dated to 400 BC, all right? So that creates a time gap of 400 years between when it was written and the earliest copy or portion of a copy that we have, right? 
And then over the course of 400 BC to typically they measure it to about 1500 AD, we have uh, 1757 manuscripts to look at. And because of that measurement, when you are given a copy of the Iliad by Homer, you are told this is his writing. And have you ever had any, any professor give you a copy of it and say, look, this is possibly what he wrote, but we don't even know that Homer wrote it. We don't even know that Homer was real. We're just kind of like, we're just a shot in the dark. Here's what I'm giving you as a really old story. That's not going to be the argument that's presented to you. And I'm not trying to, to degrade anybody or, or try, to, try, to, try to tear down uh, a, a somebody who is a teacher. That's not my, my goal. I'm trying to just point out the fact that there's a standard by which this is compiled, and then they tell you this is authentic, right? And so we can go down the list here. I'm going to skip down to writings by Plato, right? So written in 400 B.C., the earliest copies that we have are from 895 A.D. Okay, so that creates a 1,300-year time gap, and the manuscripts that we have, 210. And when that is compiled, it's given to you as being authentic. And, and for the sake of time, I'm going to go all the way down to the New Testament. So these, uh, these, these books that are, are, many of them are letters that are put together in the New Testament, uh, they were written somewhere between 50 and 100 AD. And I, I just want to tell you, next week when we dive into it, we actually have, in the, in the past few years, found uh, copies of portions of manuscripts, entire manuscripts, that a lot of scholars are arguing were even uh, copies that were being circulated while the authors were alive, okay? And so, so, so again, if we go and we look at data that was presented in the 60s, it's very, very different than data that is being presented today. I'll just back, back up for a moment and look at this uh, with Homer. Uh, when we were in school, uh, if you were in school in the 80s or the 90s, you were given a total of manuscripts, if you ever did a study on this, of 673 copies or manuscripts of Homer's Iliad. And in fairness, now that number is at 1757. Okay, so there's a significant increase, but a lot of times, and if you go and Google this, you're going to find that old data that's there, and, 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 and I don't want to just paint a picture of authenticity for the New Testament. I want to help you guys understand how it is that they create the process of saying, or the standard by which they say this is authentic, okay, and do it fairly. So at 1,757 copies, that's a lot of copies compared to what we have of many of these other writings that are given to us in various uh, stages of academia, uh, that's a lot, you know, to be authenticated. When we come to the New Testament, there are uh, 5,795 manuscripts. And if we go all the way to the 1500s, that number jumps to almost 30,000, okay? Almost 30,000. And Many of those have a time gap of less than 130 years. So, again, this is not to defame the rest of these, okay? But it's that if we're going to use this standard to authenticate these other ancient writings, it seems to me that we should be able to use the same standard to authenticate the integrity or the authenticity 
of these writings when we look at the New Testament. So the, my, my, my bottom line is, is that if we can't use this standard, then we cannot use it in our philosophy departments, we cannot use it in our history departments, and we cannot use it in our literature departments because it is the standard by which all of the texts that we are given from ancient times are presented to us. It's how they're authenticated, it's how they're validated, and they're given to us as canon. So if we use that same standard, right, then we're going to come to the conclusion that the New Testament, the, what we call the New Testament inside of our Scripture, it is actually something that is not only authentically 2,000 years old, but has also been protected, has integrity when it comes to the copy that you have. So how did you get the copy, right? So how do we get our Bibles? How do you and I get the Bibles that we have, the ones we use on our phones and an app or the paper Bible that you might carry? Uh, how, how do we get that? So I, this is what I want to do. I want to take a moment and I want to walk through that process for you. Uh, that process consists of, from what most scholars say, five steps, okay? Step one, revelation, all right? When we're talking about the Bible, we're talking about the Holy Scriptures, it all begins with revelation. God has something to say. God wants to speak. That's the revelation. God is going to say something that you and I do not either innately know is from God or we just, it is something that we are completely unaware of, right? So it begins with revelation. Step two is inspiration. That means that God has something to say, and then the Holy Spirit is going to guide and inspire an author to accurately transcribe events and teachings. So we begin with revelation, we move to inspiration, and, and God begins to speak. The Holy Spirit is speaking, and somebody is accurately writing down what it is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to them. This is why we would look at the book of Genesis, and we're talking about the creation of the world, and we would say, well, clearly we're talking about a story where only Adam and Eve are present in a, in a location that only Adam and Eve have existed, and somebody's telling that story. Moses is attributed as being the author of the story. How is Moses able to do it? Because the Holy Spirit was speaking to Moses, and Moses wrote those things down. So we begin with revelation. God knows something that we don't know. He inspires somebody to write it down, and then it is written. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 tells us, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. What Scripture is Paul talking about when he writes here in Timothy, right? He's writing a letter to Timothy. He is not talking about the New Testament because the New Testament was not considered to be, to be canonized as Scripture at this point. He is writing a letter talking about the Old Testament and the validity of the Old Testament. So he's telling Timothy, you need to understand that we're in a new covenant, yes, but the Old Testament, the, 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 the holy scriptures that we have, that they aren't an accident. It's not like a group of people got together and said, what do you think God's like, right? Imagine what that class could, could turn into, right? What do you think God is like? What do you think God should be like, right? Let's write a book that steers humanity into a certain way of thinking. 
He says, no, all of Scripture, what we have throughout the entirety of what we call the Old Testament, for them it was just the Scripture, is breathed out by God, and therefore, because God said it, it's profitable. It means something for each of us. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What do we mean when we're talking about inspiration? We are talking about the fact that God has something to say and that he is speaking through his children to get that message to us. We're familiar with the idea, right, of an autograph. Have you ever had anybody come up and ask you for your autograph, right? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Uh, when, when, I was a, when I was a youth pastor back in the day, we used to host these, uh, uh, we, we would do these Friday night concerts and we would bring in these uh, hardcore bands, these Christian hardcore bands, and it was an outreach and, and, and we would have people from all over the city show up. I was living in Birmingham at the time and so uh, these bands would come on Friday night, we'd have three or four of them and then people would show up and pack the place out and they would, they would scream and shout and they would do fight dancing, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in the fight dancing room. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you, uh, it was not my scene. So if you're sitting here going, whoa, Pastor Jim, I didn't know you were into that. I was not into that. Uh, I was into Jesus and into reaching a group of people that, of teenagers and young adults that would not show up at church for any other reason. And so this was a way to present the gospel. And so uh, um, we, had, we had some bands that became really big. Uh, they they, they kind of grew up, I grew up, swelled up, whatever. They got big. Uh, Norma Jean was one of them that would come really regularly. Uh, Demon Hunter was another one. And so these bands, they would come. And, and then the other cool thing was is that they were uh, really poor and so were we. And so I couldn't afford a hotel for them. So they would sleep in my house. So all those guys would get to sleep in my house. And then that gave me the opportunity to share the gospel with them because some of them needed it. Uh, <laughs> just because they had uh, the, the title of being a Christian artist, I don't think they realized that it meant that they needed to be Christians. Uh, and so uh, I know it's kind of harsh, but we would have these conversations and we would get to invest in them, right? And so Sometimes uh, people would be lined up to get the autograph of the band members, and then they would come up to me and want my autograph, which was always super weird. I was like, I'm, I'm, this is, I just run the space. And they're like, yeah, but you know all these people, so you know them. So I need your autograph because you've eaten beside them, right? And I would be like, this is super weird, you know, and I would sign it and give it to them. I, I hope those ended up in the trash somewhere. But we understand what an autograph is, right? Right? We understand what an autograph is. And 
For some of us, an autograph is something that actually means something. Um, let me show you an autograph I've got right here that probably doesn't mean anything to you, but it does to me. Uh, I have an uh, issue of Transformers, uh, a comic book, and it's in a certified 9.4 out of 10 uh, preserved authenticity. Pretty, that's a good thing, uh, in case you don't know. And uh, the reason that it's like that is because it has an autograph from Peter Cullen on it. Now, you're like, who is Peter Cullen? He is not one of the guys from the vampire uh, show. Uh, he is actually the guy that has voiced Optimus Prime. Uh, look at that. I'm actually, like, creating a glare on you guys. I like that. Uh, Peter Cullen getting sidetracked. Uh, he actually has voiced Optimus Prime exclusively in every Transformers cartoon movie since its inception. Right, so to get his autograph on there was kind of a cool thing, and for me, uh, Transformers was a big thing because when I was a kid, uh, a friend of mine, I went to daycare. Anybody go, grow up in daycare, right? Uh, I grew up in daycare, and when I mean grew up, I was uh, 11 when they told my parents I couldn't come anymore. Uh, and uh, so, so I had a friend, though, who had a boombox, like, and when I'm talking about a boombox, I'm talking about, like, Mr. T, like, you know what I'm talking about? Like, big boombox. And it had a TV in it, and that TV was, like, this big. I mean, like, tiny. Uh, and uh, it had an over-the-air antenna, and so we, we would sit outside during recess after school and get that bad boy tuned in, and we would watch... Transformers, right? And so there'd be like 30 of us gathered around this little, this little bitty screen. And I'm going to tell you, the picture was terrible, but the audio quality was something, I'm telling you, it was pretty awesome. And so Transformers was a big part of my life growing up. And so, so this is autographed by Peter Cullen, which is pretty impressive, right? And, and sometimes, though, uh, uh, we don't get an autograph from the person who actually uh, wrote it. Uh, instead, what we get is a copy of it. So when it comes to the scripture, this is what's called an uh, autographa. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, but the, the, what it means is, is that it is literally a copy of something that is authentic, okay? And so this means something to us. So here's the difference. So this right here is a video camera. And you're probably looking at this and saying, why are we not filming Sundays with it? Uh, this was actually uh, owned by CNN at one point. Uh, and I know you can have whatever opinion you want of CNN uh, today, but they were covering the Gulf War, and this uh, camera was actually used to film uh, some of the actual battles that were taking place uh, during the Gulf War. And so this was something that when I had the opportunity to get my hands on, I, I wanted because I love video. I love to shoot video, edit video. It's a passion of mine. And uh, to know that this camera has been in, in a place and seen some things that, you know, by the grace of God, uh, me and my family won't ever see, uh, that others have, I thought was a pretty neat thing. And so this would be what we would consider to be like the, the, the hero version of something, right? It's not a copy of it. It actually has been there, right? It was used there. Uh, and then sometimes, though, we're not able to get the uh, authentic. What we do have to get is a copy. And so this is another video camera. Uh, very interesting. Uh, this is the same model of camera that was used to film the assassina assassination of John F. Kennedy. And so while I, 
you know, could not get my hands on the original. Um, uh, when I did get my hands on this, uh, I thought that was a really interesting thing to, to be able to have. Again, having a passion for storytelling uh, and, and, and knowing that that happened, this was something that I bought and I've kept on my shelf for many, many years. Uh, and, and then, of course, while I would love to have Luke Skywalker's actual lightsaber, uh, what I get instead is a, uh, a, a copy of it. And uh, so this is just a copy of it, but it's still something that's interesting and fascinating to me. And it's a good one. You hear the sounds? Very authentic. If anybody wants to duel afterwards, um, this is a great way for us to, to, without actually touching each other, so this is corona-free, we can uh, start, maybe the host team, uh, we should get them all lightsabers, and they can just start whacking people when they come in. Uh, and maybe we'll get like uh, the gauntlet too for Avengers fans so that we can uh, hit them in the head with that. Or, or we'll just snap at people when they come in, right? How, man, I'm, I'm getting really morbid at the moment. All right, so, uh, so, so these are things that, that naturally people are interested in. And you might, right now, if you think about it, you might actually have something that you own that's like this, Right? Our musicians in the house, you might actually have an instrument that you own simply because there is somebody that you respect in the industry and that's what they play or that's what they use. And so you went and bought a copy, right? We do this all the time. Maybe you enjoy cooking, right? And your favorite uh, Paula Dean uses this specific wooden spoon or whatever it is. And so you're like, I've got to get that wooden spoon, right? We get a copy of it. Uh, I watch a guy named Adam Savage on YouTube. Uh, he was the guy who used to do um, Mythbusters back in the day, and he has a channel called Tested, and he does this little, little, little segment where he talks about the tools he uses, right? And, and he does that segment, and every time I watch it, if that tool's affordable and I think I can use it, I'll buy a copy of that tool. Why? Because I, wanna, I can do what Adam Savage does, and so if he does it, and that's what he uses, I need to have that that tool. So a lot of times those things guide why I would go and get a copy of it, right? So who are the, 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 the people who are the, the, they wrote the hero versions, the original copies of scripture, right? Well, these are people like Moses, Ezekiel, Daniel, Luke, Paul. These are the people who actually penned the scripture. And you're saying, well, how does this connect? Well, as they penned the scripture and people began to read those original uh, manuscripts, that began to speak to people's hearts. And they said, wow, I love what you're communicating right here. And just how this is being communicated, I want myself to be able to access it. I want to be able to get a copy of it. Now, let me tell you, uh, like, when it comes to the scriptures, I believe that the scriptures are perfect. Now, I, I get that we can get into a debate around this and we can agree to disagree. We can be Christians. We can be uh, people who are sold out to the gospel. And this is what I would consider to be an open-handed uh, uh, thought, okay? And that is that the scriptures are perfect. So open-handed meaning that it's something that we can agree to disagree on. There are things that are closed-handed, right? So those are things like the virgin birth. We're going to say that is essential to the Christian faith. I would not try to say that looking at the perfection of the scripture being essential to the Christian faith, that we could, that some of you might be able to come at it from some perspective and say, well, I think there's this problem here and that problem there. 
I'm going to come at it from the perspective that I believe it's perfect. I believe what it's communicating is always 100% for us today, right? It is applicable to our lives. It is not irrelevant. It is not to be disregarded. I believe that it is perfect. And let me tell you this, it's perfection, it's authority, it's power is not found in the original, right? But, but through the consumption of it. So I do not need to have the original copy that Moses wrote of the Pentateuch for me to be able to go, well, now I believe it, and now it's something for me to hold up and say, this is amazing, look at what I've got. It's not like that. It comes through the consumption, through us actually getting a copy of it. And so uh, that comes to step three, and that is transmission. How is it taken from the, the, the immediate source and then moved out to everybody else. So people want to read what God has to say, and they want a copy. So how does this take place? Well, you had scribes, right? And can I tell you something that I learned? And and again, I said this has been a little bit of a a passion project for me. Uh, One of the things that I've learned recently that I wasn't aware of is that I always kind of thought this idea of scribes was like, hey, who wants to take a Saturday off and, you know, write down everything that I read to you. And so all the people got together in their free time and they wrote out copies because they were passionate about the gospel and they would send it out. But actually the idea of a scribe, this was a profession. And it was not that these were necessarily scribes who just wrote out the scriptures. When I say scribes as a profession, they would bring scribes in who were scribes for all different types of literature. In fact, what's kind of amazing, and I'll talk more about this next week, is that they are actually able to now, through the study of handwriting, they've been able to identify a specific scribe, okay? And they're, they're, this is what's interesting, is that a specific scribe who, who might have made copies of some portion of the New Testament, right, also was making copies of Babylonian texts and copies of other uh, writings that were being put out by philosophers and teachers. And this is what it communicates to them, is that a lot of the, the, the transcribing or the copies that were being made, there was not necessarily a vested interest coming from the person who was copying it. So it wasn't like it was a, there was some form of manipulation that they had in this. They were in it for a paycheck. So what they were in it for was to just get an exact copy of what was being communicated to them. And and what this does for scholars is this adds a tremendous amount of weight to the authenticity and the consistency that they're finding from one copy to the next. And then we come to Gutenberg, and I thought this was fascinating. That's his actual name, right? Uh, So I put the whole thing up there for you because I was... I was blown away by that, and I'm just sorry again. Can I just tell you, I went to bed at four this morning, so if I'm seeming a little bit off, uh, we have a business meeting. I have been working really hard on making sure it's right, and so I thought this was interesting at uh, three o'clock this morning when I was putting these slides together. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but he invented the printing press, right? And so it was from that point when the printing press in the 1400s was put together that we are able to say from that point, and this is why, why they make that measurement up until about the 1500s, is because it was up until that time that they were still using scribes to make copies. So when we talk about measuring the uh, authenticity of it, we look up into about the fifth, year 1500 AD because they were being handwritten up to that point 
Gutenberg shows up, the printing press becomes a thing, and it begins to be used in a, in, in a, in a big way for, for the Bible. Uh, uh, Christians were using the printing press more than any other industry in the world right out of the gate because it was a way to make copies of the scriptures and get them to people. And this is what they discovered. Scholars discovered that from those oldest writings about 100 A.D., moving all the way to 1500 A.D., and again, we're talking about nearly 30,000 manuscripts that we have, there was less than a 1% variance in them. Less than 1% difference out of 30,000. From a, from a, from a, academic perspective, it's unheard of, and there isn't a single, a single ancient text that comes close. And most scholars argue that it's not close to 1%, it's actually probably 0.6% variance. That's how consistent each copy has been for us. Then we come to step four, and that's translation. So translation, this is where we have to cross the barrier of language, right? Language creates barriers. And so it's written in one language. And just so you know, the Old Testament is written in the Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. Uh, and then we have translations that were of the Old Testament Hebrew being translated into the Greek. And then we have New Testament translations from the Greek being put into the Latin, all within the lifespan of the apostles. So there are translations that are happening right there in their lifetime. We read translations all the time. So many things that we read are translated. It's not an uncommon practice. One of the big uh, kind of series right now that birthed from uh, a series of books into video games and it has a TV show, and I'm not going to lie, I don't know a lot about it, but there's this, this series called The Witcher, right? It's very, very popular, and all of that is being translated into English. It doesn't even have its birthplace in what we would consider to be, uh, 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 you know, English or American English. And so a lot of times the books that we grab, we just take for granted because we're reading it in English, that it was written in English or it was written by somebody whose primary identity is uh, American or some form of English-speaking nation, right? These are the assumptions that we make. But the truth is we read translations all the time. And so when it comes to taking a class on philosophy or history or literature, we're almost always reading a translation. In fact, let me tell you, when Jesus was teaching in the New Testament, he was using the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. So you have the the Old Testament written in Hebrew, translated to Greek, and what does he teach out of? He teaches out of the Greek almost all the time. And it's not that he wasn't aware of the Hebrew. It wasn't that he didn't study in the Hebrew, but his audience spoke the Greek language. And so many times in order to communicate, he was using the Septuagint. So Jesus taught from translations. And so it is completely appropriate that you and I would have a translation. So translations are not bad. So Christians have done more to pioneer and advance this process than any other group in history because of our passion to get the scriptures to all people. When it comes to translating text into other language, the Bible leads the race by leaps and bounds. And according to information from the Bible Museum, we are talking about a 10-year gap until the Holy Scriptures are 
in every language on the planet. There's no other work that even comes close to that. People have dedicated their entire lives to translating it and to doing it with high integrity so that even today the translations have variances of less than 1%. Again, completely unheard of. And then we come to step five, and that is interpretation. This is what makes the Bible so unique and so powerful because it is transforming unlike any other book. I want you to think about this for a moment. How many books do you read that when you're reading that book, the words in it are causing you to change who you are, bringing conviction and encouragement, educating you and transforming you, You see, we'll grab a book on a topic, and that topic can be something that might be inspirational to us, right? But there is no book like the Bible. And it's because as we read the Bible, it does something unique. It connects us with the very heartbeat of God, and God speaks to you and I. And so you can be sitting there reading the Scripture and all of a sudden find yourself directly connected to the Creator of everything. And He's connected to you, and He's speaking to you, and He's explaining to you in ways that I can't do. And I know that if I were to ask right now, many of you would raise your hand and say, I have experienced that. I have experienced that. I have experienced moments where I have been in the Word and it has been so alive. It is like the words were coming off the page and going straight into my heart. One of the darkest moments of my life when my son Zoe was born and they told us that he would not live. I remember sitting there reading my Bible, and I was so tired, and I pulled it out, and I just started reading, and I said, God, I, I don't even know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to say, is this, am I worthy or am I not worthy? All I know is that you tell me I can come to you and ask. Because that's what I'm doing. And I just began to read my scripture. And as I was reading it, I'll never be able to, to convey to you the way that the word was alive in that moment. And it wasn't about Zoe. It was just God communicating with me and bringing comfort to my soul. And so the word of God, it's, it's, it's transforming unlike any other. And it has honesty unlike any other book. There is no other book that you will find that is so heavily noted and cited. There is a high level of integrity among those scholars who commit their time and energy into creating translations, into bringing the text to you to help you understand what are the the, the 1% invariances that they find. Here's a good example for you. Some of the ancient manuscripts that we have uh, of the New Testament, specifically in the book of John, do not include a story in John chapter 7. And you'll find this noted when you're looking in your scripture because the, 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 the translators have a high level of integrity and they will tell you, hey, this is not found in all manuscripts. And it is the story 
of a woman being caught in the act of adultery and brought to Jesus with a group of men ready to stone her, to kill her. Jesus gets down, it says, and he, he writes something on the ground. We're not told what it is. And he stands up and he says, let the one who has no sin throw the first stone. And the scripture says that they just begin to drop the rocks and walk away. And so in some of our, some of our older copies of scripture, we find that this, this has been deleted, omitted, or was it added? Now, most scholars are, are making the argument today that it was actually omitted because we have found copies, I'll get into this again next week, that, that date back to be older having it in there than copies that we have that have it removed. And so there's a couple of theories around that. Uh, one of the older church fathers, Augustine, he made the argument that perhaps the reason that it was removed okay, is because people who were teaching the scriptures felt like it made people think that they could just go out and commit adultery because who's going to throw a stone at them? They're just going to be completely okay. The problem with this theory is that it doesn't take into account the context of all of scripture. So it's not like we come to this story and this is the first time that we have a conversation around sexual immorality, we're not talking about sexual immorality from one proof text. We're talking about sexual immorality from Genesis to Revelation. And people say, well, Pastor Jim, you talk about sex a lot in church, right? Well, the Bible talks a lot about sex and a lot more than I want it to sometimes. <laughs> and it's my job to communicate what it says. And so it has a lot to say about it. It seems to matter to God. And so we come into this and he says, well, maybe what the problem was is that, that, that pastors felt like that, that people would go, well, look, what are you going to do? You can't do anything about this if I'm committing adultery. Another uh, one of the early fathers, Jerome, he actually made the argument that uh, it was actually something that happened and that, the, that, the, that when John was writing this, he wrote it out, and the, the letter was sent, the copies were being made, and then he remembered that he had not included this, and so he came back and added it in. It was authentic, but he felt like it needed to be put back, it needed to be put into the story, and so he put it in, and that's why it's missing from some copies. What you find, though, is that there is a consensus that it is an authentic story that actually happened. And that whether it makes you comfortable or uncomfortable is beside the point. Another interesting fact that I'll say here as we are closing is that that less than 1% variance, not one of those differences affect any major doctrine or theology. Not one of them. Not one of them create any divide in the Christian message. Why does that matter? Because the, the scripture has been protected somehow. It has done what no other text has been able to do. And this is why I've committed my life to teaching it. This is why I want to present the gospel. It is why I want to present the Old Testament to you and the New Testament to you and tell you the stories of scripture and, and, and make us all uncomfortable. Because I believe that the Word of God is exactly that. It is God's Word. 
put into written form for our benefit, to transform our lives and to shape our families. It is authentic. It has integrity and it matters. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to close. And I do want to encourage you, if you call City Church home, to stick around for the business meeting in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to give you an opportunity to just respond. And this is what that looks like. If you have been the skeptic, the analytic, the academic, the person who has tried to debate and rationalize your own lifestyle, your own decision-making through the lens or the filter of, well, the Bible is more of a suggestion. It's not some type of authority in our lives because, you know, it was written to those people all that time ago and why does it matter today? And, and then you're sitting here and you're hearing all of this evidence for how protected it is. Almost as if there's something supernatural at work to make sure that what we are reading is the same story that people thousands of years ago were reading. Somehow inside of you right now, you're saying, well, maybe, maybe, maybe I need to, I need to repent. Maybe, maybe there are some things in my life that this justification, this is falling weak. Maybe you're in here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord of your life. Maybe you're watching online and you've never made that decision. Or maybe you made that decision and then you began to buy into the arguments that were floating around and you allowed your own version of Christianity to shape you. And so what you did is you morphed who you are and who God is together. And you thought, well, if God is real, he's got to think like this because this is how I think. Can I tell you, that's just a form of idolatry. You see, God's ways are not like our ways. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. He has a perspective that we don't have. And if we can just think about the seasons of life we walked through as children and how we had people around us who were, who were telling us things that didn't make sense, maybe even we didn't believe in at the moment, and they were there to protect us. And now, now, we've, now we've stepped into adulthood or we're stepping into adulthood. We're like, you know what? There actually was something to what they were saying, and I just couldn't comprehend it. I couldn't understand it at this phase of life, this season of life. But today, I'm beginning to understand what they were talking about. And it's that same kind of feeling that can happen when you begin to believe that the Word of God is authentic. And it might not have been written to you, but it was written for you. And so it matters. So if that's you today, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. If we could, just all across this place, bow our heads and close our eyes in just a moment of reverence for people who might want to make a decision today. We don't ever want to leave this place without giving people an, an opportunity to make the decision to make things right with God. So if you're in this place today and you would say, I need to make Jesus the center of my life. I need to accept his word to be authentic and true. And I'm, I'm, I really believe that it means that some things in my life need to change. I want to pray with you. And so there's no looking around right now. But if that's you, if you would just lift your hand so I could be in prayer with you. I see that hand. down. Let's pray right now. Father, we just come to you right now and we just come and we ask you to do what only you can do. 
to forgive us, to pick us up and protect us, to encourage us and to speak into our lives, into our hearts, that we could be transformed in the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we live our lives. Right now, for the person who's, who's, who's making a decision to, to make a change, we celebrate that right now, Father. And I ask you to move in their life bring peace that passes all understanding, hope that, that carries them to tomorrow. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness and grace. Lord, we come to you now asking you to move each and every day in your mighty name. Amen and amen and amen.